Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's never good form to start any talk or presentation with an apology, but these are exceptional circumstances. And so uh, I'm sorry you're faced with me this morning and not the person you had come thinking you would be hearing today. Um, you'll just have to try to imagine that I've got even less hair and uh, I'm a bit older and got a slightly more westernly accent but I can't even compare with John's inimitable style, of course. So uh, what you hear will be um, just what the Lord has put on my heart based on the theme that's before us, which is men of integrity. You will recall over some years we've got a little theme running in our study days. We've had men of the book and we were looking at how to study God's word. And then we thought about men of prayer and we thought about the art and discipline of prayer. And we thought we would continue that series by thinking of men of integrity. And integrity, just by way of opening, is a theme that runs through Scripture, of course. Although in many of our Bible versions, uh, we wouldn't find that word particularly. But um, if you think of Psalm 119 and verse 1... It opens by saying, how blessed are those whose way is blameless. Uh, and my version has in the margin, showing the literal Hebrew, blessed are those whose way is having integrity. And then we can think right back to the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, and the, the great figure of Abraham, when he was still Abram, and he was 99 years of age, and the Lord God appeared to him. And said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Again, walk before me and be as one having integrity. David says in his psalm, in Psalm 101, he said, I will walk in my house in my integrity. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. You know, it's when there's no other eye upon us. It's when we are all on our own, uh, in God's presence, of course, but not being held accountable by any other human being, that that's when our integrity is tested and, and proved. And David realized that, and he spoke about walking in his house, in, in privacy and in seclusion, in the integrity of his heart, and setting no worthless thing before his eyes. So integrity is certainly a theme that runs through scriptures. And we're thinking about men of integrity. And we're using that as a banner to get into John, the Apostle John's writing, his first letter. And uh, we've got it under three headings, which we'll explore as we go through the day. That of the accountable man. And that'll be our focus in this first presentation. And then when we come to our afternoon discussion time, it's about the authentic man. And then... Latterly today in our final presentation, uh, it's about the um, assured man. So, accountable, authentic, and assured. So let's begin to think around First John, the first letter by John. Just, we, we're familiar with its, its opening, of course. We're going to read some parts of it, of course. But John begins now as a an old man, uh, reminiscing, looking back on his 
experience with Christ, those three years of intimate fellowship with the Lord. And uh, he says, what was from the beginning? And I take it this is the beginning of his experience of Christianity, the beginning of his experience of fellowship with Christ. It's not the beginning we're thinking about in Genesis 1 and 1. But what was from the beginning, what, what we had heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, that which our hands have handled. He says, we, we proclaim and we testify to you. There's something really infectious about this. This is John's experience of Christ. And it's contagious. He, he just wants other people to share that. And so he speaks about others coming to know the Apostles' Fellowship. The fellowship the Apostles had with the Lord in person. And he wants others to, to share that and to experience it so that their joy would be complete. So he's talking about his seeing and his, his handling, his personal experience of Christ. And he's just so full of it. He wants to speak about it. He wants to testify about it. He wants to proclaim it. And when we we're thinking about men of the book. We were thinking about how to study our Bibles. And I think one of the foundational stones that we came across then was we have to ask questions of the text. We need to be asking ourselves, to whom was this written? When was it written? What were the circumstances? What was the purpose of the writer in conveying these things? If we want to really understand what the Bible was saying originally, and that should control the meaning we take for, it, for ourselves today from it. Controlled by what it meant originally. And to get that original meaning, we need to ask these kind of questions of the passage. Well, John, as a writer in the Bible, makes it easy for us, doesn't he? Uh, if you think back for a moment to his gospel. Who did John write his gospel to and why was he writing it? He makes it very clear in John chapter 20 and verse 31, which we'll quote because I'm sure you know it so well. In John 20 and 31, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. So we could say, John's writing to sinners, and his gospel is an appeal. The presentation of the evidence, the signs that were the credentials of who Christ is. And he makes his appeal, and it is with the intent and desire and purpose that people should come to believe that the one about whom he's been writing is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in that, they will have life in his name. So, John has made our Bible study of his gospel very plain and clear. He's writing to sinners, and there's an appeal, and it's so that they might believe. Now, he's equally helpful when it comes to his first letter. Because if you just turn over the pages to chapter 5... And verse 13, with his same candor and helpfulness led by the Spirit, he says in 1 John 5 and 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So, to whom is John writing? He's writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to believers on the Lord Jesus Christ. The people whom he's addressing are born again believers on our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and they would have been in the first century churches of God. And why is he writing to them? What has stirred his heart? What has moved him by the Spirit to write? It's so that you may know that you have eternal life. John's first letter is such a helpful letter, isn't it? I'm sure in numerous pastoral situations we found this a really helpful text. Because, sadly, because of the work of the adversary, who's ever sowing doubts in the minds of believers, there are many people who have made genuine professions, and yet sometime later in life, maybe having drifted away from the Lord, they begin to doubt whether they are saved, whether they are going to heaven. They've lost any assurance of their salvation. And these are helpful texts to bring people back to and to refresh ourselves in. These things are written, John says, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have life eternal. When you work in developing countries, but I don't suppose it's really limited to that, when you're working with with people from different backgrounds at least, um, you feel that you have shared the gospel, and you feel that they have responded to that gospel, and maybe sometime later you're chatting with them, and you ask them, are they absolutely sure that their sins are all forgiven? Are they quite positive that they're going to heaven? And they might still hesitate and say, well, I, I believe, but I'm not sure. And that's where these texts are so helpful. The Lord wants us to have assurance. So if John wrote his gospel for sinners that they might believe, he's writing his letter to believers that they might know. This is not an appeal as the gospel was. This is a letter full of assurance. We are to be positively assured Christians, believers on our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how can we be assured? Um, In the way that we've structured our day of study, we are suggesting there are three bases that John the Apostle covers and he wants to take us through. And they are, as we've styled them, the moral test and the social test and the doctrinal test. So this first talk is about the former, the moral test. But let's just pick up very briefly on where we see them coming through in the writings in this first letter. So I do want you to turn to one or two of the verses now. First of all, the moral test. Could you come with me to chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. Remember, John is writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that they may know that they have eternal life. Now, chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Now, there are quite a few verses like that dotted through the first letter. For example, if you just come to the end of the chapter, the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So, keeping the Lord's commands, doing the right things in our lives, is one very clear way, John says, by which we can assure ourselves 
that we know we have eternal life. So there's the moral test. The first base or ground for assurance that we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and destined for glory. Let's come now to the social test, if we may. And we'll come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, picking out verse 7, um, you might have other verses selected, but verse 7 is one that will serve our purpose. John says there, 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So there's a social test. Loving one another. Everyone who loves knows God. How can we have assurance that we have eternal life? That we truly know God? It should be evidenced. And we should get the positive feedback that that is so with us by our loving of one another. And you can also add chapter 3 and verse 14. I'm just spotting a second verse to show it's not just one isolated verse in each case. There are quite a few verses that you could uh, assign to these three headings. The moral test, the social test and the doctrinal test. All bases of assurance that we have eternal life. So chapter 3 and verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So again, John is saying, by your love for one another, you can show yourself, you can give yourself that positive reassurance that you know God and you know that you have eternal life. The Lord, when he spoke about loving one another in John chapter 13, he was saying it so that all men may know that um, we are followers of Christ. We have to be known by our love as Christians. John's point is slightly different. It's so that we know that we have this positive assurance that we belong to the Lord. Because loving one another is something that is now natural to us that it wasn't before. And now thirdly, uh, what we've styled as the doctrinal test. And if I can take you to, well stay in chapter 4 if you've got that page still open. And verse 2, for example. 1 John 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So there's a doctrinal test. And um, we could add chapter 2 and verse 23, just as A in other verse. Um, Chapter 2, verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So there's another means of assurance that we remain constant in our beliefs. And that assures us that we have eternal life and that we know God. Now, I want to comment at this point. That sometimes people having read this letter, without having thought through to whom is John writing, he's writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, and for what is John's purpose in writing, he's writing so that they may know that they have eternal life, 
People reading this letter without having these things firmly in the frame have sometimes confused themselves uh, as to how to be saved. Is John really saying that you've got to keep the commandments in order to know that you know God and have eternal life? Is John saying you've got to do the right things, good works, in order to be saved? Is John saying you've got to maintain complete orthodoxy in your beliefs before you can know that you are saved? No, John is not saying that. John is not telling us how to be saved. That was his gospel. This is his letter, and he's telling us who already believe, who are already saved, who are already assured of heaven, how we can maintain that sense of certainty and enjoyment and assurance in our Christian lives. It's very important we see that distinction. It's the whole purpose that John has in writing. And it will spare us confusion thinking about the basis of our salvation as we come and read John's statements and think, oh, is it purely by God's grace through faith without works that I'm saved? Or is John saying, I really need to... to uh, keep the commands, I really need to love my brothers and sisters better than I am doing and I need to maintain my beliefs. No, these are the reassurances that we get, but they are not the means by which salvation is brought to us. So I hope um, we've established these things as a a basis for our day's study. Um, Three kinds, three sorts of positive feedback for the Christian life here. Now, We want to focus in this talk particularly on the moral test. Thinking about the accountable man, one of the dimensions of a man of integrity. And this would take us to the thought expressed early in John's letter. So if you come with me now to the first chapter again, perhaps we'll break in at verse 5. This is about uh, what John has to say about sin. Because we're thinking about the moral test and we're thinking about accountability, I think this is a section that we can focus on. What John has to say about sin at this point in his letter. So let's read from 1 John 1 and verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, from the Lord, and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And then dropping down to chapter 3. Let's read from verse 6. 1 John 3 verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. 
No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. So John uh, says some quite challenging things there, searching things uh, about sin and the life of the believer. Let's try to think through some of these things. Um, these words were written, we believe, in about the 90s of the first century, when John was in the 90s of his age, an old man looking back and reminiscing. And this would have been at a time in Christian history before uh, a group of heretics who came to be known as the Gnostics came to prominence. Uh, now, that is, you already understand, is a, is a Greek word that is used to label them. Um, but it's one that we are, if we think about it, familiar with because we are very well acquainted with terms such as diagnosis or prognosis. And the, the latter part of that word, the G-N-O-S-I-S, is coming from this Greek term meaning to know, basically. And there were a group of heretics, people who became unorthodox in their Christian uh, beliefs or in their beliefs, and they were known as the Gnostics because they came to advance the proposition that we are saved by what we know. Uh, they prided themselves as being more enlightened than others, and this was for their salvation. Now, that was a little bit later in history, but I do wonder as we read the things that are stated here by John in his first chapter of his first letter, if there wasn't a kind of proto-Gnosticism um, coming into play at this point that that sort of thought that was more fully developed later was already becoming current at the time that John was writing. Because it seems there were certain people, and John's including them in the frame as he writes here, who were advancing certain claims. And John is trying to disabuse them of the claims that they're making. And it starts in verse 6, chapter 1 and verse 6. If we say, he says, that we have fellowship with him... And yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And then in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I think very clearly, John has got a group of people in his sights and he's targeting the claims that they are making. And it seems to be an early form, possibly, of the sort of claim that became a key characteristic of this thing called Gnosticism later, where people thought of themselves as so spiritual that what they did with their bodies was immaterial. It was almost like a license to sin because um, you can't affect your spirituality by what you do with your body. It's just a material thing. Um, Gnosticism had two forms. One led people into very aesthetic behaviour, um, 
pulling away from the world. In other cases, it led people into unbridled license to get away with whatever they wanted bodily because they didn't think it had any impact on their spiritual status. And it seems a little bit like that as to what John could be targeting here. He's saying these people are making claims, but they're false claims. If we say that we have fellowship with him, we're, we're having a great life with the Lord, uh, we know him and we're enjoying his company, and yet we're engaging in the works of darkness, as Paul would refer to them in Ephesians chapter 5. If we're participating in evil deeds of darkness, then it's an utterly false claim that we're making to say that we have fellowship with the Lord. These things do not belong together. There's a basic inconsistency. If you say that, then you're lying and you're not practicing the truth. And so repeatedly he hits down those claims that are being advanced by certain people there. So when we have in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think we should see that in its context. Remember when we were looking at men of the book, we were strongly advocating we read a Bible text in its context. And here's a Bible text we are very familiar with, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I'm not saying that we cannot apply that um, to the sins that we would be guilty of on a daily basis. And we're all thinking about the accountable man. And we need to hold ourselves accountable to God, to the Lord. So that at the end of the day, we can come back in prayer to the Lord and say, Lord, I've sinned today. Sinned against you and sinned against heaven. And we claim the promise here that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so that in the matter of fellowship, so that in the matter of service, our progress will not be hindered because we keep short accounts with God. And we would use 1 John 1 and 9 as a basis for that. And rightly so, I believe. I'm not saying anything against it. But what I'm saying is, it is interesting to see it in its original context. And I think that the sin that would be uppermost in John's mind, as he writes in verse 9, if we confess our sins, would be the sins that he's been dealing with in his argumentation in the surrounding verses, verses 6, 8, and 10. But we don't need to confine it to that. But I do think it is useful to see it in what would have been its original context. But for sure, whatever sins are our besetting sins, thankfully we can lay claim to verses like 1 John 1 verse 7 and 1 John 1 verse 9. It says in Psalm 130 and verse 4, There is forgiveness with you, the psalmist says, that you may be feared. If the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand? We are saved by grace and we serve by grace. And we need God's grace every day in our service. If he should mark iniquities, who would stand? But thankfully there is forgiveness with the Lord, that he may be feared. And so John is showing us this great provision we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled to God through his death. How much more, Paul argues in Romans chapter 5, shall we be saved through his life? And here's the life of our Lord Jesus now, as the advocate, the righteous one, an advocate with the Father. What a precious thought that is, 
It's the word paraclete, essentially, as we anglicise it. And I was reading a, a comment by a scholar recently saying that maybe we have made too much of this thought of paraclete from the splitting up the Greek word to call to one side. Um, he says that that is there, of course, but perhaps in every context, that's not totally what the picture is. Sometimes it's much more um, just of the Holy Spirit in John 14 through to 16 being the one who would continue the ministry of Jesus for, for believers, the other helper uh, that we have with us. Um, but certainly, if there's any um, qualification required in other um, contexts where we find this word, we don't need it here, because the paraclete here is the one called to our side as our advocate. The context here demands that that is precisely and primarily the full reading of this word here. So the Lord is our paraclete, our advocate with the Father. When we're conscious of sin, we look above, and as the hymn says, we see him who has made an end of all our sin, and we claim the, the efficacy of his shed blood for our sins. We know we're covered as far as the penalty of sin is concerned. Even if we don't confess our sins day by day, we're covered as far as the penalty of sin is concerned. We can never lose our salvation, but we are to confess our sins day by day and to keep short accounts with God so that he may be able to continue to use us um, in fellowship with himself, walking in the light, witnessing to others and serving in this world. I was interested, just in passing, uh, it is a study day and I want to, to give you a thought um, that you can mull over and come back to me on, but looking in chapter 2, verse 2 here, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's a verse that has caused a little bit of um, controversy, uh, and um, perhaps I'll share what I think about it at current state of knowledge, and if you can update that, that's fine, in discussions around the meal tables, etc. The sins of the whole world. We've got to be careful this is not interpreted by us as seemingly promoting universalism. Um, because what is spoken about here is propitiation. That's atonement. And that's not for the whole world. That's not for the sins of the whole world. Or else that's universalism. I think John is using this word, world here as the believing world but encompassing both Jew and Gentile. So believers of all kinds covered by the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes the word all in Scripture needs to be read in its context. Uh, sometimes I think the word world needs to be read in its context. But you may have a different way of understanding that verse and it will be good to compare notes about that later. But for me, I, I look on this as the believing world of Jew and Gentile, and those who've believed are covered, as far as the atonement is concerned, by the work of Christ. Now, just also one other thing on that, before I want to move to some applications. When you come to 1 John 3 and verse 9, again, it's a study day, and this is a, a verse that has perhaps 
caused a little bit of um, debate. And again, I want to just suggest uh, a thought from it. Um, it says in 1 John 3 and verse 9, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. He cannot sin. This is the same word. It's exactly the same expression in the original Greek language as we find in Mark chapter 6 and verse 5, which was the time when the Lord went back to Nazareth his hometown. And he was rejected there. And the text says that in that place he could do no great work because of their lack of faith and their unbelief in him. The Lord could do no great work. Is there a limitation upon the Lord? Yes, the reason is given because of their lack of faith. But I put it to you, the Lord chose to do no great work there because of their lack of faith. It wasn't an inherent inability on the Lord's part. But their lack of faith meant that he chose to do no work there. It's the same expression here. And I understand it at least uh, that John is saying... That the one who is born of God, the born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is one whose life should be characterised by choosing not to sin. That's not true of the unbeliever. Certainly an unbeliever who's showing any evidence of his total depravity, as scripture would define his status before God as being. Um, habitually and typically they would choose, that such a person would choose to sin. That should not characterize us as those who've believed on the Lord Jesus. We should choose not to sin. You know, I think John does this throughout his letter. It's not that he's trying to oversimplify things, but he's, he's showing behaviors that are typical. The behavior that's typical of the unbeliever is to hate his brother. The behavior that is and should be typical of the believer, is to love his brother. And they're characterised in that way. I see it a little bit like, and this was something that came up recently in the Philippines, people were asking about Revelation 21 and verse 8. You know, chapter 21 of Revelation is about the city, uh, the final eternal city. And it says, those outside that city will be those who are the liars and the swindlers and the sorcerers and the immoral. And so the question is, Oh, people who've committed immorality, can they never get to heaven? Can they never be part of that eternal destiny? And you say, well, that's a similar list in many respects with what we find in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. And the kinds of immoralities that were listed there by Paul. He writes to the church of God in Corinth and he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. We thank God that his grace extends to overflow and cover all kinds of sin. No matter how despicable and detestable it is. Um, but those who are outside that eternal city are those who, because they have no saviour, are characterised by these kinds of deeds. They, they typify that person who's unregenerate and totally depraved. Whereas those who of us, by the grace of God, 
who've known the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we are to be characterised by that which is without sin, that which is loving, etc. So John is presenting these things almost like black and white. And he's not trying to say, because we've seen the argument earlier in chapter 1, that believers are incapable of sinning. Sadly, it's a personal reality that we, we all do sin. But what should be typical of us is choosing not to sin. It's a little bit like the argument you, you, you make with people today who um, take umbrage at the thought that Muslims are um, engaged in acts of terrorism and they get labelled as being um, terrorist and they say that's not true, that's just a, a fringe, a marginal behaviour of it. And then they might come back and say, and you Christians, what about the Crusades centuries ago? Is that not just the same kind of thing as jihad on the one side and crusades on the other? But then we have to come back and say, we're not comparing apples with apples here. Because when Muslims behave in that way, they are acting consistently with their holy book. Because the Quran would say that they try to persuade the infidel, but if the infidel does not repent and is not persuaded, then they should kill that person. So jihad is very much the spirit of the Quran, And these people who act that way are acting consistently with their, their holy book. Whereas Christians who act that way, or who act as is reported happened in the Crusades, that's an aberration of Christianity. That's acting inconsistently with our holy book, the book, the Bible. And so we have to compare um, what is consistent behaviors consistent with beliefs and John is talking about behaviors consistent with beliefs so he can talk about if someone is practicing righteousness that's a righteous person if someone is doing evil that's of the devil it's a a black and white um, characterization in those terms it's not trying to say you don't get aberrant behavior but he's bringing out the typical characteristic situation. And sinning should not be characteristic of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what 1 John 3 and 9 is bringing before us. So, the moral test then, as we try to come to a conclusion, is about walking in the light of God. And when we slip off the path, as we all will at times, repeatedly, we're so thankful there is a way back, uh, there is a renewal of fellowship through the practice, the Christian discipline of repenting and confessing and realising the grace of God. Confessing when we slip off the path. This is holding ourselves accountable. This is the accountable man in terms of the moral test of seeking to do what's right, but at times slipping up and holding ourselves accountable as John brings before us. Now, just as I conclude then on that, um, we're, Graham's going to be taking us uh, into the discussion groups, which are case studies. And the first case study deals with the whole area of sensuality and pornography. And it's a very relevant topic for us as men to be faced up with. Our key, uh, our Kent Hughes is quoted as saying, as a pastor of Wheaton uh, in the US, as saying that the whole area of sensuality 
is the greatest threat and challenge to godliness in Christian men. We have a hymn that says, He breaks the power of cancelled sin. It's one thing to know that our sin is cancelled. We're saved. We're eternally secure. Our sin is cancelled. But it can still exercise a power over us in daily lives. And it's good to know he breaks the power even of cancelled sin. But that's about holding ourselves accountable uh, under God in seeking to enlist his help as we need it to break the power of cancelled sin. Just on this matter that we'll be coming on to discuss uh, and to feed into your discussion groups on this thought of the, the curse of addiction to pornography. I heard about, um, it was in one of these TED talks, by the way, if you want to look it up on the internet, the, the little 10-minute segments of people who've got something to say about technology or um, design and, and so forth. Uh, and this chap was talking about the work of uh, Bruce Anderson, a, a professor of psychology at Vancouver in British Columbia. And, you know, people had done this little experiment. They'd got a cage, and they had a, a bottle of water at each end of the cage, and there was a rat in the cage. And one end of the cage, the water bottle was pure, unadulterated water. And the other end of the cage, the water bottle had heroin in it. And as they watched, the rat maybe sampled each and then continually went back until it overdosed and killed itself on the water contaminated with heroin. And everyone would say, well, that's exactly how we understand addiction works. The chemical hooks, they get hooked on it and they can't do anything about it. And Bruce Anderson thought, I'd like to try a different experiment now. Take the same cage and uh, the same two water bottles one adulterated and the other one not. He says, but with the rat inside, instead of making it a bare Spartan cage, let's make it into rat heaven. Let's put lots of other rats in there. Let's put loads of cheese. Let's put coloured balls and tunnels and, and let them have a, a great time in there. And they did that. And when they watched, the rats repeatedly took the water from the pure water bottle. The 100% overdose rate went down to essentially 0% overdose. And he was saying, you know, we shouldn't be talking so much about addiction, but we should be talking about bonding. When these rats are able to live, in rat terms, happy, connected lives, they can give that a miss. It's not about the chemical hooks, it's about the cage. It's about how fulfilled and happy they are and connected bonding with others in that environment. And then people thought, well, maybe that's just to do with rats. Maybe that doesn't work in humans. And we can't really do a human experiment. And yet, at that time, there was a large human experiment in the same terms. And it was called the Vietnam War. Because out in Vietnam, 20% of the American forces were on heroin. To survive the horrors of war, 20% were on heroin. And the government was seriously worried. What would happen when these people come back and try to get back into ordinary life in the US? They're going to be addicts. Society is going to be broken with all these junkies coming back into it. But when the forces came back, there wasn't a problem. There might have been some uh, isolated cases, but generally speaking, there wasn't a problem. And uh, 
it was researched and written up in the archives of general psychiatry and so on, the studies of these soldiers returning. And the problems more or less vanished because they were going back into leading happy, connected lives, bonding with families and so many other things. And I guess that's what we are more familiar with in, in our ordinary lives when an elderly uh, relative goes into hospital for a hip replacement and so on and they're on diamorphine, which is pure heroin, and they come out and they're not a junkie. And so the point that's coming across, and it might be useful to feed into our studies, is that it's not so much about the chemical hook, if at all, it's about the cage. It's about how we are happy and connected in our lives. So the greatest prevention against any kind of addiction, including the pornography addiction that our case study will take us into, is surely to live in the way that the psalmist is advocating. Not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, not to stand in the path of sinners, not to sit in the seat of the scornful, but to delight oneself in the law of the Lord and to meditate in his word. David in, in, in Psalm 27 and verse 4 that one thing he would ask of the Lord, and that he would seek after, that he might dwell in the house of the Lord to behold the beauty of the Lord. If we're taken up with the Lord's beauty, if that's where we are bonding, if we can put it that way, and making our strongest connections, Psalm 37 and verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What are we making the strong connections with in our lives as preventative to the sad problem of addiction that can otherwise come. So, I want to leave that thought with you. Um, because it is a problem, and I do think we need to hold ourselves accountable, because aside from that very positive prevention, we need the fallback position, I'm sure. And I'm so glad that there are such things as family-friendly filters on home networks, and you can have your browsers by default set up to a high privacy setting <coughs> because the images that can otherwise come onto our screens could sweep any one of us away potentially. Who can withstand these things and the power of them? You know, the statistics state, just as we go into our discussion, that more than 50% of Christian pastors regularly use pornography. That 68% of church-going men regularly use pornography. That in the 18 to 24 year age bracket, 76% of these young people actively search out pornography. And it's not difficult to find. There are 370 million pages of it on the internet. I remember Rob Parsons used to say that in a previous generation, these, these temptations were there also. But it was like someone was walking down a corridor and there were doors down the sides of those corridors. And you had all these labels on the doors, like pornography or what have you. But the doors were closed. And maybe people at times tried the handle and checked these doors were, were locked. But today, he says, as we grow in this world and as our children grow up in this world, it's as if you're going down that same corridor and all the doors are wide open. And it's there on display. And it's so much harder. And so we're living in a generation that has to really be very accountable in this area. I'm over time, so I'm not going to in any way lead into the other topics for discussion. Graham, I'll leave that over to you. So, yes, as David has said, um, we're on the last lap now, the third of three. 
the assured man, the doctrinal test. And we will come again, of course, to 1 John. But I'd like to begin by dipping into John's Gospel, if I may. Same author, of course, and uh, a continuing theme between the Gospel and the letters. One of the uh, briefing points for this talk was exploring in a small way uh, John's linking together of the father and son in relationship as he presents it in the Gospels and in his letters. Father and son acting together for our salvation and for our service now. So with that in mind, let's start, please, if I may, in John chapter 3. John's Gospel, that is, chapter 3. There are two or three times in John's Gospel where the relationship between the Father and the Son is very explicit and very precious. And we read about the Father loving the Son. And here's the first one in John chapter 3 and verse 35. It says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And we just come over a couple of chapters to John chapter 5. And you notice in verse 20 it says, For the Father loves the Son. But let me begin reading with you. Um, perhaps from the beginning of the paragraph in verse 18. John chapter 5 and verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, to kill the Lord Jesus, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Just in our first, and in fact, maybe for completeness' sake, if we come to uh, John chapter 10, I'll just read it to you, and verse 17, we read the Lord saying in that section about the good shepherd, he says in John 10 and 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. It's a precious little trio there of the Father loving the Son. Father and Son in the relationship with each other for our salvation as presented in the Gospel by John. 
But I wanted to look at this matter of the relationship between father and son, first of all, on the basis of the text that we've read, as it throws light on the deity of Christ. Because that's what comes out of this paragraph we've read in John chapter 5. Those that had accused the Lord and criticised him for working on the Sabbath and for compounding the error in their eyes by going on to make himself, as they termed it, equal with God, the Lord said in response, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. You know, this was brought home to me um, in fairly recent times uh, when I was visiting Africa. And certainly in Mozambique it became very, very clear. Of all the countries I visited, or certainly portions of countries that I visited because the churches of God have had an interest in that particular portion in the various lands, Mozambique was certainly the poorest. It is the poorest. These are exceedingly poor people. And it was a delight to them when we spent days going around visiting them in their homes. And when we visited the little enclave where they had their houses, simple little uh, mud bricks built up. For the most part, they weren't even fired mud bricks because that would be too expensive for them. So these were little mud huts with thatched roofs that were built. And in any time of heavy rain or flooding, they would have to rebuild or do significant reconstruction because the bricks were still soft, unfired. But they had these very simple homes, easy to build, self-built. The head of the household will build the house. And they would entertain us there and then they would say, and you see this little house next door? And it would be a similar house to that one. They say, that's where our firstborn lives. And then this house over here, that's where my second eldest son lives with his wife. And, and then they'd go around. And so there was this central house, little hut, and then there were all these small, humble dwellings around it, enclosing a very small parcel of land, which was evidently the land belonging to that family that had been handed down from generation to generation. And then the father would show us what he was doing. For example, it would be very often basket weaving on the, on the dusty soil, and he'd show how he was weaving these baskets or mats, and he said, that's what I train my son to do. And he will take over the, the basket weaving. And then in time to come, his son will take over. And you could just see that for generation after generation, that's how life had gone on. Probably largely unchanged for centuries. People living close to the land, uh, subsistence living, simple mud huts, and doing some basic skills that they could trade with. And so generation after generation supplemented by rearing some livestock, were eking a living in that particular way. And this text certainly resonated in my mind. The son would watch what he saw the father doing, and he would do likewise. He would learn to do likewise. And of course, that's what it was like when the Lord was here in the New Testament, and from among the disciples that he called to himself. Uh, they were fishermen, um, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, where had they learned their skill for fishing from? They had learned it from their father. They weren't going to have any different career other than the career their father had previously had because he would raise his 
kids outside of a formal education system, presumably, and they would learn the, the craft, the trade that was their father's. So they didn't really have much chance of becoming bakers or carpenters. If their father was a fisherman, that's what they were destined to be. Because whatever the son sees the father doing, he would do likewise. And the Lord would have observed, and in his perfect knowledge, of course, all that was going on around him in that kind of culture at that time in the land of Israel. And I'm sure this colours his remarks and he gives it this very special uh, meaning here as applied to himself and the father. And he says, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. Now in the first instance, that demonstrates the subjection of the Lord to the father. The son subject to the father. The son doing nothing of his own initiative. The son can do nothing of himself except what he sees the father doing. So the subjection of the son to the father is brought before us there. But it doesn't end there because the verse continues. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. And the father loves the son and shows him all things that he is doing. So because that's so all-embracing, that brings in the equality. That brings in the deity of the Son. The subjection, because it's not of his initiative, but the extent of the work that he's involved in, because the Father loves him and shows him all things. And whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner. That's the full deity of the Lord being expressed in that second part of the statement. But it's all couched in terms of how people would have lived generation to generation. The son doing what they saw the father doing. And so here, as we glimpse the father and son in their relationship together, through the eyes of John and the inspired writings in the word, we can see how it reflects powerfully upon the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many ways in scriptures we can defend very readily the deity of Christ. Sadly, the cults are so blinded to this. But uh, here, as in many other ways, we can see the deity of Christ on display. And so, that is the first aspect of father and son relationship I wanted to, to bring before you. Now, if we can come, still in John's Gospel for the moment, but let's come to John chapter 14. I'm not going to take all the readings that relate to the second point as we develop the father and son relationship seen in John's writings. But if you look at verse 10 of John chapter 14, the Lord, in discussion with the disciple Philip at this point, says, Do you not believe... That I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. You could check it out, but in John chapter 10 and verse 38, you have the same expression, I am in the Father and the Father in me, that you find here, first of all, in verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but also repeated in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And there's a very similar statement in John chapter 17 and verse 21. So it's a recurring a theme that the Lord takes up. I am in the Father, he says, and the Father in me. And he says, that's how you can see the Father working through me. The works that I'm doing, they're not my own works, but the Father abiding in me does his works. I am in the Father and the Father in me. The Father abiding in me is doing his works. A father and son relationship. Peter later spoke about the miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him. In your midst, he said to the audience. It's God the Father working through his son. The Father abiding in him, doing his works. The closeness of that relationship between father and son. And John revels in writing to us about these things, that intimate relationship of father and son. He's talked, of course, in John 1 and verse 18 about the son who's in the bosom of the father. And that's a timeless um, statement that John makes about that intimate association and relationship of father and son within the Godhead and their joint working. But just taking it a little bit further here, we're thinking of the father and son in their relationship in terms of how it involves us today. Because the Lord went on here to say, truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. Those are staggering words at first reading, aren't they? Greater works than the works of the Lord Jesus. But the Lord himself promises that we will do greater works than he did. Now he's established that it's the Father abiding in him who's doing his works. When the Lord was here, when God the Son was here in humanity, God the Father abiding in him was doing his works. Now the Son is in glory and we are here on the earth. And God is at work through us today as Christians serving him in this world and their greater works the Lord says so otherwise we could never have believed it but their greater works now than were done by the Lord when he was here how can that be what was the Lord thinking of when he said those words surely surely he was thinking ahead to Matthew chapter 28 was he not and the great commission that he would give at the end of the gospel by Matthew all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. 
That was the Lord's agenda for those he was leaving behind as he went back to glory. While here, in his intimate relationship with the Father, I in the Father, the Father in me, it had been the Father in him, abiding in him, doing his works in the life of the Lord. But now the Lord was going. And he was authorising and commissioning those disciples he was leaving behind to continue the work of God in this world. And surely these words, greater works than these you will do, have a reference primarily to that great commissioning at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And so we turn the pages of our Bible and we find the sequel, of course, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And we see how the Lord's commission, and we see how the Lord's prayer, so fervent in John 17, just on the eve of Calvary, all comes in to a glorious reality. As those men, commissioned by the Lord, went out into the world, and disciples were made, and persons were baptised, and churches of God came into existence, spreading around the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean, and into the hinterlands, and crossing into the continent of Europe, Amazing landmarks in the development of New Testament Christianity in terms of the churches of God that we read about coming into existence on the pages of Scripture. Surely, these are the greater works that the Lord was talking about here in John chapter 14. Through the Spirit indwelling believers, the works of God continuing through the entire church age. And praise God. His name, we are part of it today. Churches of God are growing and expanding in the world today. And the biggest problem facing the fellowship today is how to manage growth in the present day fellowship. Greater works than these, the Lord said. Golden lampstands coming into existence in different countries, in different locations, as the plan of God was fulfilled and put into effect through those that followed the Lord. So, the father and son relationship, evidenced in the works the Lord did, being the father's works through him, and we continuing on from that, as the Lord had predicted. In relationship with God, John 17 has us abiding in God, we in God, and God working through us, so that we may all be one, and that it might be realised in the way it was realised in the days of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, I want to come to the third strand, and I want to come now into 1 John, please. And we'll touch more directly now on the assured man and the doctrinal test, but still developing it in terms of the relationship between father and son, as seen in the writings of John. So it's... 1 John, and first of all, I want to take you, well, let's pick up chapter 2, verse 23 initially. Again, it's the relationship between father and son, and John is, again, very careful to defend that and to give the son his place. Whoever denies the son does not have the father, and the one who confesses the son has the father also. Now, we'll turn over to chapter 4, please. Perhaps we should read the first six verses of 1 John chapter 4, because in our afternoon section, we read the balance of the chapter. So we'll complete the chapter by taking the first six verses now. 
Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Sometimes we have discussions, don't we? Um, Why is it that in the Western world in particular, in some of our own immediate localities, why is it that people are not receptive to the word of God? Why is it that soil seems to be so hard? And yet, maybe the cults come along with their message. And we hear that they have their adherents and their thousands and in some cases millions on a larger scale. Well, is not the answer found here? They are from the world. Therefore they speak us from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. God's sovereign purposes are behind this. And to John, there would be no surprise that the gospel was not in every place accelerating rapidly. The world listens to the message of the world, but we are speaking from God, and it's those who are from God who listen to us. You know, sometimes this passage in its opening verses here is a little bit confused, I feel, when it talks about don't believe every spirit, test the spirits. You'll sometimes see uh, sincere believers taking this up and they apply it to um, interrogation of demons or trying to to work out um, which demonic power is associated for something. That's not, of course, what this text has any bearing upon. Um, This is about false teaching and true teaching. False teachers and true teachers, and how to discern the difference between what is teaching from God and what is not from God. And John says, you've got to listen to what people are saying, and you've got to have a critical appraisal of what they are saying. Use the discernment that God has given you because of the anointing that you have within you. And he says, this is the clarity. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So this is about false and true teaching and teachers. And the keystone doctrine is that Jesus has come in the flesh. God come in flesh. You know, sometimes... People say, well, I don't want to get involved in theology. I don't want any heavy doctrine. Just give me a simple message. Just simply preach Jesus. Well, when you preach Jesus, you're involved in deep theology. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, John says here, you have to confess that Jesus is God come in the flesh. That's 
the kernel of truth. And anyone that denies that, they are doctrinally off the scale. They're completely unorthodox. That's the spirit of the Antichrist, denying the incarnation, denying the person and deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there were people at the time of John's writing that were doing that. We can read about the names of some of them outside of the canon of Scripture. There was an arch-heretic that um, some of the writings that followed on from the canonical writings of Scripture mentioned, a man by the name of Corinthus. And John apparently regarded him as the, the, the real um, uh, antichrist enemy, if you like, the real unorthodox uh, false teacher. And there are all kinds of stories that are told about John, whether it was at Ephesus, um, running out of a swimming pool or something because this other person had emerged into the building and he didn't want to be there in case the, the roofs came down and judgment upon this person. All sorts of stories about that. But in any case, there seems to have been a man, Corinthus, uh, who's a contemporary of the Apostle John, uh, who sourced or conveyed very faulty and flawed teaching about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there may be a reference to it here in chapter 4 and verse 2, where it speaks about, uh, or verse 3 even, every spirit that does not confess Jesus. Some of the most ancient readings of that, I don't know whether they're the best readings, but some ancient readings of that, and included in the Vulgate, the Latin version, would be every spirit that looses or separates Jesus is not from God. And Corinthus, if this has a bearing on that, Corinthus' teaching was that you had to separate the man Jesus from the Christ spirit. And he believed that, and he taught, that at the baptism, at our Lord's baptism, the Christ spirit, Christ consciousness, or the Christ spirit came upon the man Jesus from the time of his baptism. And just prior to the cross, the Christ spirit left him before he was crucified on the cross. And if that ancient reading in verse 3 of chapter 4 is in any way accurate, then that might be what is being alluded to. He who separates or looses Jesus. There's another potential connection when we come into chapter 5. Let's read it now. Chapter 5 and verses 6, 7 and 8. Again, there's been some controversy about these verses. And you'll see some textual variants. Different versions of scripture will include different words here. The King James Version will read differently from um, my NASB, for example. But reading as I have it here in the NASB from... Uh, Verse 6, this is the one, and it's referring to Jesus Christ, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Testimony. To the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what is John saying here? At first reading, it's quite strange. What is the water? What is the blood? Well, 
we would probably identify the blood as a reference to the cross, and I believe that's so, and the water as being a reference to our Lord's baptism, baptism uh, of John in the River Jordan. And what is John saying here? It seems that he is referencing the Lord's baptism at one end and his cross work at the other and saying Jesus Christ. There's no loosing or separating of the man Jesus from the Christ spirit. John is saying very emphatically, perhaps in this interpretation at least of these words, that Jesus Christ was indivisibly Jesus Christ at his baptism, before his baptism, and at his cross and after the cross. There's no thought of the Spirit descending in terms of the Christ Spirit uh, descending so that he became Jesus Christ at his baptism and he ceased to be just before the cross. That was the teaching of Corinthus. People would have been listening to it around the time John was writing and John is saying Jesus came by water and by blood. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. The whole life of the Lord, indivisible. He's Jesus Christ, indivisibly so. And so it was a testimony to the, uh, the incarnational truth. God having become flesh and the perfect life of the Lord and his atoning death as the God-man upon the cross. Having become man so that he could give his life and death upon the cross of Calvary. These things are at the very heart of Christian faith and teaching. Um, John is writing about the spirit of the Antichrist. And he writes about anti-Christian spirit and teaching. And it would be the denial of these two things that really define the anti-Christian spirit. To deny the incarnation and to deny the atoning work of Christ on the cross. These are the two great vitals of the Christian faith. And the denial of these pillars is the ultimate denial of Christianity. And it is anti-Christian through and through. And of course these things have a relevance for us in the modern world. Uh, you know, I'm sure with me, that there is one worldview in the world today that denies the historicity of the cross and the work of Jesus Christ there. And that is the view of the Muslim faith. Those who follow Islam and its teachings. Because in Surah 4 and 157, they have stated in their holy book that Allah did not allow his messenger, Isa, Jesus, in their view, to be taken by the hated Jews and put to death on the cross. Allah would never have allowed that. Not for one of his prophets, as they lay claim to Jesus. And so they variously believe that someone substituted for Jesus. In some versions of their teaching, it's Judas taking Jesus' place. But they deny the crucifixion of Jesus. Because they, they honour the Lord as a prophet, as a prophet of Allah, and they would not allow him in their thinking to have suffered such an ignominious death at the hands of the Jews that they have an implacable hatred towards. 
And so they deny the historical death of Jesus Christ. And of course, they deny the sonship of Jesus Christ. Because in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock, above the door in Jerusalem, it says, God has no son, neither does he need any partner. And so those believers that we sometimes hear, that sometimes say, you know, let's not get in a fix about this. Some people call God Allah. Uh, We call God uh, Yahweh or whatever from Scripture. Uh, These are just names. It's the same being that we are revering. Oh, it's not. It's most definitely not. By their own definition, the God that the Muslim people worship is a God who has no son. And the God that we worship and adore is a God who has a son. A son who he gave. A son who gave himself to die upon the cross. So the incarnation and the atonement are things denied by that major worldview in the world today that is the fastest growing religion in the world or the fastest growing forced religion in the modern day world. And that's a major trend and it it features, I am convinced, in Bible prophecy for the end time. But that is certainly capturing um, in full the spirit of Antichrist, a denial of incarnation truth, a denial of the atoning truth concerning our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But here these things were being denied by some in John's day. And so he says, this is the touchstone doctrine. If you know whether teaching is true or false, they have to accept that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. And of course he says that he is the one who came by water and by blood. The indivisible Jesus Christ, uh, the second person of the Trinity, is the one who, uh, in human um, terms, died upon the cross of Calvary. Now, fourthly, as we think about the relationship between Father and Son, I'd like us just to come to the end of John's first letter. And there's almost like a creed that's given at the end of 1 John 5, isn't there? He says in verse 20, We know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. What did John mean by that last remark? He's given us this creed, this succinct statement of biblical truth. And then he says, guard yourselves from idols. Well, there are parts of the world today that churches of God are active in serving the Lord in where idol worship is still a very relevant part of the service of others. And uh, it's a constant battle for believers sometimes to overcome their backgrounds, just as in New Testament times, eating things sacrificed to idols. Believers in the Philippines face exactly that issue. Because there's one day every year when they would culturally have been brought up to eat things sacrificed to the dead. And there's idolatry involved in that overall practice. So these things touch very closely 
with churches of God in their service today in certain parts of the world. But what is John saying when he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols? I think it's more all-embracing than that and is directly relevant to ourselves as well. An idol is an image, of course. And, and any image is something that reduces God. Idolatry was banned. It, the, the first commandment, of course, is to have no other God other than the true God. Exodus 20. The second command is to have no graven image. It's not repeating the same thing. It's saying don't make any representation of the true God. Don't have any other God but the true God. But also don't have any representation of the true God. Because whenever you try to represent God, you are reducing God. Venerating him through a man-made object. And it's, it's wrong. It's totally against the command of God in Scripture. And John here, the apostle, says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. He's been dealing with issues in his letter. And he's been dealing with people who've got a wrong mental image of God. A wrong mental image of Jesus Christ. And we can have that today. And we need to come back and make sure we are holding the purity of Scripture in terms of the doctrine of the Godhead and the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the God-man. You know, there's a, always an interesting thing just by the, the by as we come past 1 John 5 and 16 where John speaks about don't pray when you see a brother committing a sin unto death. And it's so intriguing. What is this sin unto death? That we're not to pray about a brother if he's engaged or embroiled in that. It must have been something that was clear to those people to whom John was writing. Otherwise, the instruction would have been ineffective. And it obviously wasn't ineffective. This is part of the inspired word of God. And those to whom John was writing would have clearly understood what he was getting at. Well, I can't be dogmatic about this. But as I look at this, in the context of John's writing in 1 John, I think that the sin unto death that would have been paramount in John's mind is the denial of the Son. That's a theme that he's come across, as we've touched on, in our reading of, of 1 John. And he's warning people that, you know, you, if you deny the Son, you're denying the Father as well. If you confess the Father, confess the Son. And these wrong conceptions about Jesus not as God come in flesh, or as uh, Jesus the man distinct from the Christ spirit entering and leaving him at different times in his ministry rather than being the indivisible Christ. All these wrong mental images and conceptions of Jesus and of the Godhead. And I think that the sin unto death here would have been this denial of the Son as he's presented in Scripture and denied in some of the ways that John touches on in his apologetics here for the person of Jesus Christ. And certainly, if a, a believer should ever have succumbed to the false teaching, if they hadn't tested the spirits, and if they had imbibed some of these false teachings of others about Jesus as not having come in the flesh, etc., if they had imbibed that, they were finished as far as their service for the Lord was concerned. Denying the Son, how could they serve in churches of God? That would be the end of their service. And it seems to me in its context, that's 
what 1 John 5 and 16 is pointing at, but I'll leave it by way of a suggestion rather than being attempting to be dogmatic. But little children, John says, in summary at the end, guard yourselves from idols, from what we're seeing as wrong mental conceptions or images of the Lord and of the Godhead. And I just want to finish on that note um, because this whole idea of idols, of man-made gods, it doesn't just belong in the ancient world, as we've said, but in an intellectual way, it belongs to the modern debate about the new atheism. Because you've got these people who come and they say, well, if you believe in Genesis, if you believe the Bible, you believe God, some supernatural being, uh, some great intelligence has created us all, then who made God? It's a standard question, isn't it, that we face. Who made God? Let's come back to that. But it reminds me of, in a way that I'll explain, um, a story that is surely apocryphal of Albert Einstein and an Indian gentleman who are making a long train journey together. And to pass the time, Einstein suggested to his Indian fellow passenger that they would ask one another questions to see if they could stump each other. And uh, he said, "Um, if I stump you, then you've got to pay me $5. But if, if you stump me, I'll give you $50. And we'll see how we get on. So they started off. Einstein said, I'll ask the the first question. So he said, uh, he says, how far away is the moon from the earth? Indian thought about it for a while. This wouldn't be true of all Indians, of course. But he just said, I I don't know. I don't know. Pass. So he then coughed up his $5. So Einstein was ahead. So he said, right, it's your turn now. You've got to ask me a question. So the Indian said to him, what goes up the mountain with three legs and comes back down the mountain with four legs? I thought about that for a while. He says, no, he says, I'll have to give up. He says, I don't know that. Yes, there's your $50. But before, of course, he moved on, he said to the next time, he says, right, I'm going to ask you now, what does go up the mountain with three legs and come back down the mountain with four legs? And he thought about it for a minute or two, so. Nah, you give him the five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> people outsmarted him. Uh, anyway, these these were difficult questions to answer, impossible questions to answer because they were totally ill-defined. It was a nonsense question, and that's my point about people who ask who made God. It's an ill-defined question. Um, Jeff's wife Margaret and I were talking recently about this because of a, a conversation in the family. Uh, who made God was the question. And we were saying, well, one way we could handle that is to say, go back and ask them the question, how long is a piece of string? You can't answer that question. Not because um, no specific piece of string has a definite length. And certainly not because no no such thing as string exists, but because you haven't defined which piece of string you're asking the question about. And that's the same type of question that people are asking when they say, who made God? John Lennox, in debate, will often say, I'm not talking about any man-made gods. I'm not talking about created gods. I'm talking about the God of the Bible. Let's define our terms. And so ill-defined questions are hard to answer. We need to define our terms. And John, in his letter, 
has been defining his terms, father and son in the relationship they have, and saying, guard yourself from wrong mental images of the Lord and of our God. You know, just on that final point as we close, one of the arguments put forward for the existence of God, if we were going to try to give an answer to these people who, although they have phrased the question wrongly, if we're trying to help them out, if we were saying to them, well, there is uh, various classic pieces of evidence for the existence of God, one of which was put forward by Anselm long, long ago, many, many centuries ago, and taken up by Thomas Aquinas. And it was um, the argument from the nature of God's being, and they would have argued, God is a necessary being. God is the only being who cannot possibly not be. Because if God was not in existence, we would not be here. That's the logical necessity. Because if you think about it, that's very true. Uh, although it's hard for some people to accept it. And when Professor Stephen Hawking died, sadly, his most matured thought, it would seem, was that the universe had created itself and there was no God. The universe created itself. Um, the idea that there once was nothing and then it exploded and so there was something. But neither spontaneously or over billions of years can you get something out of nothing. It is just philosophically impossible to do. Um, philosophers would say it breaks the law of non-contradiction, which simply says that two mutually exclusive things cannot simultaneously exist. In other words, you cannot, or cannot both be true, you cannot have something that both exists and does not exist at the same time. That breaks the law of non-contradiction. It cannot exist and not exist at the same time. And that's what people are saying who say that the universe created itself. Because it had to be in existence to do the creating, but it also had to not be in existence in order to be created. And that simply cannot be. Uh, it's a complete impasse. And therefore, because there is something now in existence, because we are here and it's not nothing, therefore God must exist. And as the Bible presents him, even in his name, Moses said, who shall I tell them that you are? What is your name? Yahweh. From the verb to be. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. God is the supreme being. He is the only being who cannot not be. He logically must exist. We don't necessarily need to believe in his existence. But God certainly needs to exist for us to be here. And so, just a, a closing thought then on correct uh, mental images of God and of the deity and through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been tracing then the relationship between Father and Son in John's writings, seeing first of all them pointing to the full deity of Christ through John chapter 5, seeing them pointing to the staggering contemplation that we are doing greater works according to the Lord Jesus than he did when he was on earth through that Father-Son relationship, I and the Father, the Father and me, presented in John chapter 14. And then we've seen through the lens of chapters 4 and 5 of uh, 1 John the fact that that relationship between Father and Son brings us to the cross and the incarnation and then the atonement of the Lord. 
And then finally, we've thought at the very last verse of First John, we've thought of how that thought of father and son in the relationship brings us to a sharpening up of our need to have right mental images, biblical thoughts and conceptions of the God who truly does exist and who it says, of whom it says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 17, he calls into being that which does not exist. That's who God is. Thank you.